God bless the reading of his word this morning. Amen. Yay, we have people in seats. You have no idea what this is like in here when there's nobody else. So, we need feedback this morning. Yes, thank you, Tim. We need feedback from all of you this morning. It is so good to be together. Listen, um, now that said, I want to address you who are live streaming. It's appropriate for some of you not to be here. And so we don't want any of those comments to feel like some sort of added pressure for you to make your way to the building. We're glad, we're grateful that some of you are um, prayerfully using discernment and uh, it's appropriate. It's appropriate not everybody is here, but we're grateful that it's not an empty room at the same time. And as Richard just read, we are in Isaiah 44 and 45, and this is a stunning section of scripture. The title this morning is, How Big Is Your God? How Big Is Your God? And before we dive in, let's pray. God, I want to thank you that we can be together this morning. I want to thank you for all who are able to be here in the building, and I want to thank you for all who are live streaming right now. I want to thank you, Lord, vastly to to the large majority of us. You have kept us well and healthy, Um, and God, I thank you for that. Uh, I thank you for employment and for those who haven't had employment. I thank you for the generosity of this church to serve and to help others, and now we pray, Lord, bless the preaching of your word, for this is your word that we turn to now. God, we pray that you would reveal yourself. That's the point of your word. You seek to make yourself known this morning. So God, we ask you by your spirit, come speak to our hearts. Do that for the building up of your church and do that for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. How big is your God? Do you serve an impotent God, able to do some things, maybe occasionally do some pretty grand things, maybe even more occasionally some miraculous things, and yet lacking in power to do whatever his hand sets out to do? Do you serve a somewhat wise God who sees slightly more than we who are created? Do you serve a small God who is unable to meet your every need and answer your every need as he sees fit? Do you serve a partial God who has come to patch things up just a bit, a little transformation here and a little transformation there? Or is he, is your God the almighty, wise, powerful, faithful, gracious, merciful, loving, faithful God who has redeemed you from the pit. How big is your God? Is he sovereignly control over all things? Or is he in some sort of cosmic battle with Satan kind of duking it out and none of us really knows for sure who will win in the end? Is he still building his church? As he said to his disciples that he, he would build his church and the gates of hell would not stand against it. Or has COVID-19 somehow slipped around the corner and suddenly caught him by surprise and now he has to pivot and shift to a new plan, plan B for his church? 
Are we just aimlessly waiting around for a solution to all this madness? Or is he big enough to take COVID-19 and use it to build his church in our day, to build greater gospel unity, not less, greater hunger for God, not less, greater widespread repentance in the saving of many lives, or as I said, are we just aimlessly waiting around for man's solutions to the madness? Now, I know that this text that we're in this morning isn't about COVID-19, but here's the thing. The people, this is what it is about. The people of God in Isaiah's day are in captivity. You see, the, the text is about the greatness of God, and specifically, it's about his sovereign hand over his people who are in captivity. It's about the sovereign hand of God, the power of God, the greatness of God, the faithfulness of God towards his captive people for no fault other than their own. It's about how God will deliver his people out of that captivity, sovereignly. This morning, my goal through Isaiah is to help us grasp a bit, obviously, of God's greatness. Our God is a great God. If we split this sermon up, we will. We'll split it up in, into three parts, but they will not be equal in parts. But the first third of our um, text this morning, beginning in chapter 44, verse 24, is about this. It's about our God is a great God. The second third is about, amazingly, in our arrogance, we question his, his, sorry, his greatness. Slip of the tongue. Our God is a great God, first third. Second third is amazingly in our arrogance, we question his greatness. And the final third is, and yet he continues to invite us to come to him. It's amazing. So let's dive in. Point number one, how great is our God? And have your Bibles open. We are going to be covering a lot of ground this morning, reading a lot of scripture, but I want you to hear it from print, from God's heart to us this morning. So again, going back to 44, beginning in verse 24, says this, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. How many things has he made? He's made all things. Is there anything that he has not made that we see? There is nothing. He has made all things. Who alone, right? Like we weren't there. Who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. The point is, is it's not inhabited right now. They're in exile from Jerusalem. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. They're crushed right now. And I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. And we'll pick up in just a moment. This is how the prophet 
Isaiah speaks of the sovereignty of God. He, he, he comes in and he says, God owns it all. God's responsible for it all. God, is, God will take in this section of scripture, he takes final responsibility for it all. He is the creator, verse number 24. He is the redeemer, again, verse number 24. He is the ruler of all things, verses 25 through 27. And then we come to verse 28. And if the previous verses aren't shocking enough, he raises the stakes. Listen to verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, we'll figure out some things about Cyrus in a moment. Who says of Cyrus, Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. This is Cyrus saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, Jerusalem, and the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. First he calls him his shepherd. Now he's calling him his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him. Who's doing this? God is doing this through who? Cyrus. To subdue the nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. That happened. To open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you. God will go before Cyrus and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasure of darkness and the hordes in the secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside, there, beside me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. It makes the hair on my arms stand up. Goodness. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I think you get why we need to read large chunks of the scripture this morning. Maybe I don't need to preach. Maybe we just need to read the text. Thank you. Jeff Shank, it's good to have you back in the building. <laughs> what we need to know, we need to know something about this guy, Cyrus. At the time that this was prophesied, Cyrus wasn't. He didn't exist. He won't come as a conqueror for another hundred years after this is prophesied. And God is revealing his greatness. God is displaying his sovereign rule by naming Cyrus by name 100 years before Cyrus ever was. God is here calling him. He's calling him out by name to prove his sovereign power over everything. Cyrus was a Persian conqueror. Let's pull on that thread a little bit. Who will God use? Not a man of God. This is a idol-worshiping, pagan, nation-conquering 
ruler, Cyrus. And how does God refer to this pagan, idol-worshiping, conqueror, Cyrus? Get this, shepherd. He calls him his shepherd. What? How big is your God? He also calls him his anointed, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Now we'll get to it right now. Sorry, I am, I've got notes. I've got scriptures in my notes, and I've got scriptures not in my notes. 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. God is, is God calling Cyrus his shepherd and his anointed? Indeed he is. What did that mean for Israel as they suffered in captivity? It meant that God had not forgotten them. That would have been the taunt, by the way, of the surrounding nations. How great is your God? Not very great. Look where your God landed you. God is raising up a pagan ruler, an idol worshiper, calling him his shepherd, making him his shepherd and his anointed, which should trigger, right? Shadow, someone is yet to come. And we might think that you know, Cyrus is just one pagan ruler replacing another one because he is just replacing another pagan ruler. But no, God is raising this man up. Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, if you remember, we preached through those a number of years ago. This is how Ezra begins his little book. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... The Lord stirred, who stirred? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, to build a temple, to build a house of worship. At Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. And they did. God raised up Cyrus to conquer Babylon because God's people are in captivity in Babylon and because God is faithful. He raised up an ungodly conqueror to do his bidding. The hand of the Lord, the finger of God, turns the hearts of kings. We might think that all that's happened is this new pagan idol worshiper is replacing the old pagan idol worshiper. Ah, but Cyrus is a different sort of idol pagan worshiper. In what sort of ways? Well, in three ways. When Cyrus conquered a people, he then freed them. He freed them to then rebuild their temples. Three reasons. One. Humanly speaking, it was a good PR move. 
It was good politics. It was good keep the, keep the captive people happy move. Spiritually speaking, he thought that this would invoke the favor of the surrounding nation's gods. And so he set the Riando um, peoples free and he restored their temples. And then he did the same for the Bowmans and he restored their temples. And so all of their gods, he's invoking the favor of all the people's gods. Humanly speaking, spiritually speaking, sovereignly speaking. God was at work. And God has spoken since Abraham that he will have a people. And those people are in captivity due to their own sin. And yet God will be faithful and he will be merciful and he will raise up a pagan secular government to set his people free. Only God can take a pagan ruler and make him his shepherd, his anointed. Only in the greatness of God can he use a ruler like Cyrus to lead his people back home to Jerusalem, which was more about worship than it was city. All this, of course, is a shadow of a future deliverer who will not be a pagan. He will not be an idol worshiping conqueror. He will be a conqueror. He will be a king. And he will conquer our captivity. The shepherd, the anointed one. He will be God's holy anointed one who will shepherd his people safely home. We're not there yet. To the new Jerusalem. Jesus said of himself, I am the great shepherd. He was the anointed one. And again, not to, not to just for destination's sake, not New Jerusalem for the sake of, well, that's that city. For the sake of worship of his holy name, he will bring us all the way home. What did that mean for the people as they heard these words from Isaiah as they suffered in captivity? It means, it meant God has not forgotten you. It meant that God was revealing himself to be faithful yet again and in a very surprising way. It meant that God was willing to turn the whole order of things upside down to accomplish his will. Look again, put your eyes on the page, verse 24, the middle portion there. I am the Lord who made all things. Then go chapter 45, verse number seven. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. See, God uses who he wants, when he wants, to accomplish what he wants. He does not ask for our opinion. Our wisdom is not pursued. Our strength is not requested. He will do what he will do with whom he will do it. Captivity will not thwart the sovereign plan of God. Neither will COVID-19. A pagan ruler will not thwart the sovereign plan of God. Listen, neither will modern politics. Are we kidding? What we get all in a ruffle about. Are we kidding? How big is your God? A pagan ruler will not thwart the plan of God. God will use what he so determines to use to accomplish his sovereign plan. We might not understand that. We might struggle with that. We might wonder how 
that will be, but we can know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. See, if God is sovereign, then hear me, then we have the president we are, are, we are ordained to have. Now, for those of you who love President Trump, and you're in your living rooms, and you're going, amen, and you're going, finally, Tim's getting political. I'm sorry to discourage you. I'm not getting political. For all those who are watching, and you're a never-Trumper, it's the same amen. God is sovereign over who is in leadership in our country. And by the way, that's the same that goes for our previous president, Mr. Obama. Am I ruffling any political feathers this morning? I hope I'm doing more than that. I hope I'm ruffling your biblical convictions. I want to shake us out of our casual convictions, our small God view. I want what we say to be true, not only in our heads, but in our hearts. And it ought to come out of our mouths in how we interact with each other. In these very uncertain days, our God is certain. I want it to affect how we engage your brothers and sisters. How we engage each other when your candidate loses and your candidate wins. I want it to affect how we engage with differing opinions right here in the middle of COVID-19. How big is your God? What is God able to do? He's able to take a pagan, idol-worshiping, nation-conquering ruler and make him his shepherd and anointed one. Is that possible? Answer from God's word? Yes, that's possible. Friends, we cannot put our God in a box. In truth, Hear me, if God was small, it would be easier. What? What? Yeah, what I mean is this. If God were small, then when a pagan ruler took over as president, as prime minister, as dictator, then we could easily dismiss him or her. If God were small, then those rulers took office outside of God's sovereign plan. It'd be easier. If God is small, then Satan might be defeating God today. But if you hold to a big view of God, then even when worldly thinking is seemingly to be winning, God has Satan on a leash. He lets him out as he so wills. That's the sovereign hand of God. And thanks be to God. That's why the gates of hell have not stood against, will not stand against his bride, his church, the global church of Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm not preaching Americanism. I'm preaching our God is a great God. And what that means is that if you're a Christian in a communist country, then the gates of hell will not stand against his bride. You don't need to become an American. You need to become a Christian. Wow, how incredible has it been to see the underground church in China grow Over the years, increased persecution, the church grows. 
communism, the church grows. Is God's hand suddenly too short? How big is your God? But if God is great, if he's not small, if he's sovereign over every molecule in the universe, now we have a problem. Now things get hard for us. Why was I diagnosed with cancer at age 24 and three weeks later, Kaylee was born? Why did the chemo drugs beat me down? And why did the radiation create Crohn's disease? Why are you struggling without a job? Why did your loved one die? I think sometimes we wish we served a small God. It would be easier. Then we could assign these things away to just random occurrences. But if you serve a big God, I am restrained. I am, I am imprisoned to speak the truth. If you serve a big God, he's sovereign over every molecule in the universe. Why COVID-19? Well, verse seven simply tells us, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. We're not given, we're not always given the reasons why. Broadly, we know that all these things are the result of the fall due to sin. But how will God take these things in our lives and use them to bring about our good? We don't always know why or how. And that's frustrating for us, the proud, who demand an answer. You see, sovereignty helps us to see that there's nothing that is random in the universe. There's not a single blade of grass in the universe that's growing right now outside of the sovereign hand of God. There's not a single speck of sand on all the world's oceans that is outside of the sovereign hand of God as the waves move them in and move them out. If anything is outside of God's sovereign hand, he cannot be trusted. Wickedness itself is not outside of God's sovereign hand. Somehow, James tells us, he's able to use it. He doesn't own it. He's able to use it without being dirtied by it. To what extent is God sovereign? He is sovereign over the most wicked moment in all of human history. Of course, I'm speaking about that event where God himself hung on the cross, where, where the creator hung on that tree which he created and was nailed to the tree by hands which he created. If ever there was a moment that we might cry, this is outside of the sovereign hand of God, it would be the cross of Christ. And if you and I were sovereign, I dare say every one of us in here would have said, I'm taking him off. I can't handle watching the son of God suffer like that. I take him off and God sovereignly kept him on the cross, allowed him to suffer that you and I might live. Amen. If there ever was a moment that we might say, this is outside of the sovereign hand of God, it was that moment. We would say evil had won. 
God lacked wisdom and power to accomplish his sovereign plan. This was that moment. But Isaiah will prophetically speak of that moment in Isaiah 53. We'll get there soon. In a few weeks, we're getting close to Isaiah 53. And he says this in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Peter said as much when he preached at Pentecost. He said, quote, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God takes the darkest moment of all of human history and he uses it for his purpose. How big is your God? Let's stop excusing God. Let's stop shrinking him down by making excuses for the difficulties of life. God owns it all, even the dark moments of life. All glory belongs to him. He uses those dark moments to bring us to him and make us like him. I am the Lord, verse seven, who does all these things. Rejoice. God is God. Praise him. We are not God. But we don't like God's job of being God. The latest polls are in. And most people on this earth don't approve of the job he is doing. Why? Because we think we are a better sovereign. We have a better plan. And that's what brings us to point number two. How big is our pride. That's really the second section of our text. We can't read it all. So please do so on your own time later on. But verses 9 through 13, we could, we could simply state how big is our pride. Listen to verse number 9 and 10. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? See, this isn't, the Bible here isn't addressing the humble heart that's asking questions of God seeking understanding for God's ways. This, this isn't the person who's struggling with the circumstances of life and digs into God's word and digs into the truths of who he is and asks appropriate questions of the text and asks appropriate questions of God, seeking understanding, seeking insight. How big is our pride? This is the arrogant that elevates himself or herself and reduces God and judges God. In essence, this is the prideful heart that says, I am a better sovereign. We insist that God do, does things our way. We, the clay, demand things to go the way we want them to go. We, the clay, say to the potter, I don't like the way you are fashioning me. We turn prayer into another opportunity to let him know of our great displeasure. We don't want God to be God. We want a small God, a God that we can control rather than a God who is in control. We, the clay, say to the potter, what are you doing? Regarding God being sovereign over all things, people say, I'm no puppet. You are quite right, 
you're not a puppet. That statement proves as much. But it also proves you want God to be your puppet. We want to experience the love of God and the faithfulness of God on our terms. All the while we assume we are the potter. God is my clay. He is to respond to my every request. How dare he call me the lump of clay? I am sovereign. I am wise. I know what's best. How big is your God? Is he big enough that you can trust him? I'm not asking you to blindly trust him. I'm asking you to trust him based on his word, who he is, what he has shown himself to be. Based on his character, based on his activity, we read throughout this entire book, but also based on the activity of your own life. What sort of faith and trust is needed if God is simply a puppet in our hands? Does he exist to do our will? You see, trust is easy when things are going our way. But when the potter starts to mold something, this, this pot of clay doesn't think is best, watch out. My pride will rise up. I will begin to counsel the Almighty. I have it in me to arrogantly think I am a better sovereign. How big is our pride? Isaiah is a great book to help us to identify our pride and repent of it. And so that leads us along to God's invitation. It's an invitation to respond to him. It's an invitation to join him, to join in his sovereign purposes. It's really a call, even though the word doesn't show up in the text, it's a call to humility. How amazing is his invitation. Thus says the Lord, verse, verse number 14, I think it's 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature shall come over to you and be yours and they shall follow you and they shall come over in chains and bow down to, um, to you and they will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God beside you. What's being said here? You see, remember, since the Jews were defeated and the surrounding pe peoples would have thought God was defeated. Look how big their God is. Since you're in captivity, clearly your God is powerless. I mean, how can God accomplish his plan while his people are in captivity? So what does the Lord do with his captives? He takes the captives and he sets them free. And in their day, he raised up Cyrus and set them free from the Babylonian captivity. In our day, he raised up a better Cyrus. Christ came, your shepherd, the anointed one, and he freed you from your captivity from sin and death. They were set free to return home and worship God. And friends, we have been set free to one day, well, already to worship God and not yet to finally be home in our new Jerusalem to worship our God. On the cross, Jesus Christ bought our freedom, setting us free from a life of ungodly desires and the pursuit of idols and extreme arrogance. He is bringing you, church, to a place of verse number 14. We'll jump to, to the end. Surely, God is in you. That's the surrounding peoples. 
and there is no other, no God beside him. Jump down to verse number 22. Here's the invitation. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. What an amazing, kind invitation. How big is your pride? Oh, it's big. It's big. For every one of us in the room, it's big. How big is your God? He's bigger than your pride. And he has redeemed you. And even in their captivity, and even in our captivity, he came and he set us free from pride and sin. He has redeemed. Let's stand together and let's sing how great thou art.